Hello and welcome again for another video podcast around the World Skills Conference 2021. Under the theme The Road Ahead Skills for a Resilient Future, this year's conference will be taking place online and live from Shanghai from the 25th to the 29th October. As an overarching topic, we'll be looking at the effects of the pandemic on, on skills development and the lessons learned that can influence our vocational education systems to better prepare youth for future crisis. The three tracks of the conference will be addressing green skills, poverty alleviation and apprenticeships. Today, I would like to introduce you to Victoria Levin, Senior Economist in the Education Global Practice and co-lead of the Skills Global Solution Group at the World Bank who is joining us to talk about the poverty alleviation through skills track. Hi, Victoria. Nice, nice having you here. Thank you. Great to be here. So current World Bank projections suggest that up to um, 150 million people will be pushed back into extreme poverty by the end of this year as a result of the pandemic. This means that much progress in gender equality, health, education, skills and productivity which took years to attain, has been reversed. And for the least developed countries, recovery will be much more steep as resources are scarce and much of the workforce is, is engaged in the informal sector. For migrants, uh, also suffered greatly and, and were in many cases stranded in urban areas or other countries. So in the current situation, it has become even harder to reduce extreme poverty to less than 3% as aimed by the international community uh, by 2030. Victoria, could you tell me how has the pandemic impacted the availability and access to good jobs that could help people out of poverty? That's a very tough question. And certainly 2020 has been a very difficult year. So we at the World Bank, we usually rely on data particularly coming from household surveys or what are called labor force surveys to give us a very clear picture of what the labor market looks like at a certain point in time in developing countries. Unfortunately, due to the pandemic, many of these data collection efforts have been suspended. Actually, they were suspended in most countries due to health concerns. But on the other hand, we do have some data coming from phone surveys from about 40 countries that was conducted during 2020. And this gives us some evidence on what has actually happened in the labor market across the world uh, during this very difficult time. And what we can say based on the data is that labor market impacts have been massive. So uh, again, in uh, the second quarter of 2020, uh, in the countries that were, um, where this, this phone survey took place, we saw that about a third of all workers uh, stopped work in the early stages of the crisis. We also saw that about one in five people reported uh, receiving partial or no pay. And 9% of people changed jobs. Of course, this had uh, a massive effect on workers' incomes as well. So income losses were pervasive uh, in developing countries. Then as lockdowns eased in the third quarter, uh, recovery picked up. So we saw evidence of um, increases in employment and some recovery in income. But unfortunately, by the end of 2020, this economic recovery and this labor market recovery appears to have stalled again. 
And with 2021, and especially with the advent of uh, uh, Delta variant, workers across the world still experience tremendous pressure and uncertainty. But one thing that we need to keep in mind is that the distribution of labor market impacts has not been equal. So some workers have been much more affected by the labor market disruption than others. So the same phone survey data that I just told you about, it also shows that women, youth, and less educated workers have been more affected by this labor market disruption in the early months of the crisis. So for example, for women, women were eight percentage points more likely to stop work compared to men. And workers with primary education or less were four percentage points more likely to stop work between uh, April and June of 2020 compared to more educated workers. So what does this tell us? That to me, it says that education has this protective power, right? So even in normal times, in times when we don't have this global crisis, education is associated with much better labor market outcomes, including better access to good jobs, higher salaries, and much lower likelihood of being in poverty. But during the crisis, it also buffers these shocks, right? These unexpected shocks. It allows workers to use their skills, their competencies to adapt to the changing circumstances. And this is very important. Victoria, that's, that's a really good point. And it brings me to, uh, to my next question. So we've, you, we've seen great disruption to the labor market, but we've also seen such a big disruption in education and skills development. Um, what will actually be the consequences for impoverished uh, youth? Yes, we usually say that COVID-19 has brought about a crisis within a crisis. So even before the pandemic started, we were talking about a learning crisis, a global learning crisis. Um, because youth around the world have been struggling to acquire these foundational skills that they need to be able to, uh, to achieve their potential, right? And we know that, again, even before the crisis, in low and middle income countries, 53% of children, so the majority of all children, were in what we call learning poverty. That means that by the end of primary school, they were unable to read and understand a simple story. So the, as literacy is so essential in terms of acquiring other skills, this, this is a true crisis. Of course, the COVID-19 pandemic made it much worse. Uh, and the impacts are particularly severe for the more disadvantaged students because of their limited um, ability to access digital devices and limited connectivity, which is also remote for being able to continue learning through remote means. Our simulations show that um, COVID-19 pandemic is likely to increase learning poverty by 10 percentage points, bringing it to 63% of all children. And even that is actually an underestimate because when we made these simulations at the World Bank, we expected school closures to last, uh, to not last as long as they actually have. So what we know is that as schools are reopening, we're also watching uh, 
much, we're watching very closely uh, the extent of dropouts as, as students return back to schools, they return back to tertiary institutions, and particularly in secondary and post-secondary educations, we expect to see increased dropouts. And we're particularly worried about girls and, and young women, because we know that they have taken on a disproportionate share of the burden of household duties during the crisis. And that's why we worry about all the gains that we've made in terms of achieving gender balance in education, potentially being threatened by the pandemic. So during the early phases of the crisis, uh, we know that students in tertiary education and in TVET institutions were struggling in terms of the switch to remote instruction and the potential financial hardship they were experiencing as their parents, their families uh, lost jobs and potentially required them to enter the workforce before they were uh, able to uh, graduate from their studies. So we wanted to know what was this impact early in the crisis and how TVET institutions were responding to this challenge. So we joined forces with ILO and UNESCO early in the crisis to, uh, to have a survey of TVET providers, policymakers, and social partners. And the results were striking. So as you probably would have expected in April and May of 2020, we saw that some type of disruption to uh, TVET skills provision was almost universal. There were very few TVET providers around the world that were able to continue in-person a provision of instruction. But other alternatives, the availability of these other alternatives was very much varied across countries. So in high income countries and upper middle income countries, three quarters of TVET provider respondents said that they switched fully to remote instruction. This share goes down to about half of TVET providers in low Middle, uh, in lower middle income countries. And in low middle income countries, only one in five providers were able to switch to fully remote instruction. And actually about half of providers in low income countries were not offering either online or offline training, which could have a devastating effect on the students who were participating in this training before the pandemic. Now, even when providers could uh, make the switch, right, could manage to switch to remote instruction, it doesn't mean that all their students can make the same switch. And this is true because of this extreme digital divide, which existed before the pandemic, but the pandemic demonstrated it very starkly. Because students, again, students that don't have access to digital devices, that are living with limited connectivity, cannot take advantage of these uh, high-tech solutions that are potentially being offered. So we need to work very hard on remedying this situation. And this is why in our response, what we're focusing on right now is not just the immediate crisis response, which is still there, right? We're, we're focusing a lot on getting children and youth back to schools, back to universities, back to training institutions, and making sure that they actually accelerate the recovery of learning losses that they have experienced. But at the same time, we're also focusing on systemic reforms. 
to make sure that education systems are better able to provide equitable access to training and also are better prepared for the next potential crisis. Yeah, I, I, the, the current situations probably made it uh, a must to ensure that, that VET policies uh, provide greater inclusion. And I think um, uh, our second session in, in this track, Strengthening Inclusivity, New Learning Models, uh, which will be taking place on the uh, 27th October, uh, we'll, we'll be able to look at it into more detail. Um, just for the sake of our listening of our listeners, if you could give us already a little bit of a sneak peek on on how do you think we can make uh, skill development policies more inclusive, so that they can actually contribute to this strengthening the resilience of households and countries and societies for the future. Excellent question. So inclusion is a key priority in all of our skills development work, and uh, we need to make sure that we always recognize that education is a key pathway out of poverty. It's probably the most important pathway, but to make that pathway happen, to, to have the desired impact of transitioning people out of poverty through education and skills development, this skills development needs to be truly inclusive. And I say truly inclusive because sometimes exclusion happens not because of some bad intentions, but just because some skills training programs are not designed or implemented with an inclusion lens. So what we're thinking about is that we know that women tend to um, take up skills training opportunities in many countries uh, with much lower frequency than men. And why does this happen? We need to address the constraints that are specific to women such as their caregiving responsibilities or barriers to mobility in some contexts to in order to be able to bring them into these skills training programs. And this can be done. And we know we have examples where this has been achieved. So for example, uh, the Jovenes en Acción program in Colombia, it provides childcare subsidies and it actually provides an opportunity to have children in daycare at schools while the mother is in skills training. Or uh, a youth employment program in Benin actually allowed young mothers to bring another person, a child minder, with them so that while they're getting their training, the child minder can stay with the young children. And this way, both of those programs were able to achieve much higher participation of women and were able to include women in the skills training programs. Another element to consider is to actually think about the whole journey of a student through the skills training cycle. And this starts with, uh, with information about the skills training opportunities. Um, so for example, disadvantaged youth might not have the same access to information about what is available in terms of skills training or scholarship opportunities to help them finance it. So what needs to happen in these cases is that there needs to be a targeted outreach to disadvantaged students in order to improve their information. Uh, another stage where uh, there could potentially be obstacles to inclusion is the admissions process, 
because some disadvantaged youth might have a harder time uh, demonstrating their skills and competencies in a conventional application. Now, once a disadvantaged youth is inside, already enrolled in a program, what needs to happen is provision of tailored support, tailored academic support, tailored financial support, and tailored psychosocial support to help them along this journey and to make sure that students who might be at a higher risk of dropout are supported at every stage. And last but not least, it's very important to help disadvantaged students transition to the labor market. Because usually uh, disadvantaged students are ones with weaker networks in the labor market. So they may need more uh, models, more role models in a profession. They may need more coaching in that, uh, in that process of school to work transition. One last point I wanted to make is on the role of technology. We think that technology could be a very powerful tool in promoting inclusion. So with the rise of digital content and online and blended learning uh, opportunities, learning can happen anytime, anywhere, and at the student's own pace. So as long as we can address the issue of digital divide that I spoke about earlier, technology can be very powerful in, in, in providing this flexibility for students in remote areas, for students with barriers to mobility, and for students who may need to work part-time or even full-time to support their family income in order to still be able to learn, to upskill and reskill, and to achieve their potential and uh, aspiration. There's also been a shift towards self-employment that's often perceived as a good thing, but it should also be regarded as a sign of deteriorating work quality. Is that correct? How should skilling initiatives uh, support entrepreneurs by choice who have actually a chance to thrive and, and grow their businesses? So we consider entrepreneurship as, as a key way out of poverty, and this is how it is perceived by youth in many countries. But successful entrepreneurship does not just depend on the technical skills, on the business skills of knowing how to do accounting, how to do how to make up a business plan, or how to fill out a loan application. It draws very heavily on what we call socio-emotional skills, skills that help a person navigate personal and social situations effectively. So training targeted to entrepreneurs needs to take that into account and needs to actually deliver and foster these types of skills so that students can use them better in the, in the world of self-employment and entrepreneurship. And actually there has been a lot of evidence already gathered that this can be done and that this, that this um, focus on social emotional skills in business training is very impactful. There was an experiment in Togo, for example, that compared the impact of a standard business training with a training that's based on psychology, which was called personal initiative training. So students in this personal initiative training uh, focused on uh, self-starting behavior, innovation, goal setting and planning, and uh, setting up feedback cycles that could be very useful in identifying business opportunities and making businesses more effective. 
And what, what the study found is that firm profits for students who were randomly selected to participate in the personal initiative training were much higher than similar students who were randomly selected into the standard business training. And the impacts were especially high for female-owned businesses. Another great example of, uh, of this happening, this combination of social-emotional skills and business skills is the Educate program, which has developed a very unique curriculum that does exactly that. It focuses on 21st century skills like creativity, critical thinking and networking alongside the standard business skills. And uh, Educate has done this for secondary school students in Uganda, in Kenya and Rwanda. And what they found is that they, they've achieved impressive results, uh, both in terms of employment, income, and importantly, in terms of business ownership. And their impacts are actually also much higher for girls. So more generally, the literature on business training shows that we need to move away from the traditional type of business training and incorporate some of these additional elements, such as uh, gender-focused training, which actually uh, goes through addressing how women, for example, can address the concerns that are specific, uh, the constraints that are specific to them. Um, also training that customizes to the local context, the local labor market, the local challenges. Um, training that simplifies what is taught so that it can be more easily remembered by very busy entrepreneurs. And as, as I mentioned, training that incorporates these insights from psychology. That's very interesting. Um, and we'll be hearing from Educate themselves in, in one of the sessions in this track. So, so yeah, that's going to be very insightful. Um, another thing that it's important when we talk about uh, jobs and, and poverty is uh, informality. Um, how do we help workers in the informal sector transition to the formal sector? Well, for one, we actually help workers, even those workers who cannot, for the time being, transition to the formal sector. They still need support, and it is important that they do get this support. So, for example, a lot of youth in, in our client countries um, get trained in what's called traditional apprenticeships or informal apprenticeships, which is training by master craftsmen. And we work together uh, in countries with the governments in order to upgrade that type of training, making sure that the quality of the skills that is being learned is better, that this training uh, has more equitable access to it, and that skills that are being acquired can be more easily recognized uh, afterwards. So in terms of the actual policies to support transition to the formal sector, um, the, there's a set of policies, and but what's very important about this is balance. There needs to be more balance in order to promote policies that, uh, that have an effect on access to better jobs. Now, the types of policies that have been found to have an effect on formalization are tax incentives, wage subsidies, labor inspections, vocational training, right? What, what we're focused about uh, in, the, in this conference um, and, uh, and other types of policies. But again, what's important is that this balance in labor regulations 
needs to be the focus of uh, policymaking here. Because for example, yes, labor inspections can help, but only when the whole set of labor regulation is not overly rigid. And of course, as I mentioned before, providing opportunities for reskilling and upskilling is perhaps the best way to offer uh, young people an opportunity to gain those competencies that open doors to the formal labor market. Um, the last session in the track is going to be a showcase where we will, we will see examples that can improve employment outcomes through skills um, from different parts of the world. Why do you think uh, a showcase session like that is important? It's incredibly important. So experts like us can talk day and night about the potential benefits of skills development or how to design uh, the optimal skills development program and how to deliver it. But it is stories, it is examples of success that actually resonate with people. And particularly, this is important at a global event like World Skills Conference to showcase uh, these types of examples. So people watching and people participating can have this aha moment. Like, see, this can actually work. It's not just in theory, this can and has worked somewhere. And this aha moment is the first step towards real change. So of course, I wouldn't recommend taking this example of success from one context and replicating it in exactly the same way in, in another. Every skills training program needs to be uh, adapted, needs to be, uh, needs to be translated to the local context, needs to respond to the unique challenges of that context and use the resources that are available. But still, identifying key features of what has worked and drawing out lessons is incredibly important and very valuable. So for example, I know the showcase session will feature an example of a World Bank supported project in India called Naimanzel or New Horizons. And this program is targeted at out of school minority youth um, that has an explicit focus on women and persons with disabilities. And Naimanzel provides a unique combination of formal education and short-term skills training that also is followed up by support in the transition to the labor market. So far it has trained close to 100,000 participants and they've achieved very great results in terms of uh, participants reporting higher self-confidence and higher earnings. But what I find most inspiring is actually this, these personal stories of the beneficiaries who used the opportunity of Naimanzel to open other doors, to reach for the stars and to access new careers. So I hope your audience enjoys the session and I myself very much look forward to seeing it. Thank you, Victoria, and thank you for helping us start the conversation on, on poverty alleviation through skills ahead of this conference. Uh, we're also very excited to have all these amazing speakers in this track and, and for the rest of the conference, really. Um, for you at home, we hope that you have already registered and saved the date for the World Skills Conference 2021, the road ahead skills for a resilient future. If you have not, do visit our website worldskillsconference.com and, and book your, your spot.
Um, a big thank you um, to the World Skills Conference Coalition partners for making yet another edition of the conference possible. And uh, we look forward to have you, Victoria, and uh, the rest of you join us for the global conversation on skills. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Victoria, and, and hopefully see you soon. Thank you, Judith. It's been a pleasure.